Again, if you would, take out your Bibles. And let's turn to Genesis chapter 44. Genesis chapter 44. Again, we're going to be looking at this chapter in its entirety as we continue looking at uh, the story of Joseph. And in particular, as we're moving closer and closer to the reconciliation that is to come between him and his brothers. So Genesis chapter 44, starting in verse 1. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sacks to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose cup The hand, the cup, has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear. And let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asks his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left with his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for for if he should leave his father, his father would die. 
Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go. If our youngest brother goes, if our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I shall never see him since. I have not never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up, In the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me I fear to see the evil that would find my father the grass withers the flower falls but the word of our God remains forever you may be seated let's pray together father in heaven we thank you for this reading of your word We pray, Father, now for the preaching of your word. Be with this your servant. We pray, O God, that that we may come to a right understanding of your word as it is taught, and that we may apply it to our lives, and that this all may be to your glory. We pray, God, that you would till our hearts deeply with your word. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the more difficult, but at the same time necessary things in which the church of Jesus Christ must do is exercise church discipline. This is both for the good of the one caught in sin, but also for the honor of Christ who is holy and just. God deals with his covenant people. He disciplines them. He chastens them with the aim of restoring them because God desires that his people be reconciled to himself and also to one another. And oftentimes, God will use other people as instruments of such reconciliation, people such as you and me. This is actually one of the roles of the elders of the church. The elders of the church have a duty before our glorious Lord, having been given the keys of the kingdom, to exercise church discipline both in a formal and an informal sense. This is accomplished through the preaching of the word, through individual exhortation, through urging of repentance and faith, in keeping the sheep accountable to the word of God. All Christians really should call one another to greater measures of repentance and walking in obedience to, the God, to God and his word. And often you may hear this message from this pulpit. At times you need to hear this message individually. Even the elders need to be reminded of these truths. You and I must strive to obey the word of God to turn from our wickedness and to cling to Christ as our Savior. And we must do this 
every day. Now, with this in mind, too, we are reminded by the psalmist that God knows our heart. Though I may not know your heart, I I certainly am not God, but God does know your heart. And here's what what it says in Psalm 139. This is a reminder to us. Oh, Lord, says, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Sometimes we don't heed the warnings from the word, and so God will hem us in. God will press into us. He will make us uncomfortable. He will bother our consciousness. There are times the Lord will bring us nearly to the end of ourselves so that you and I would repent of our sin and cling to Christ. In our text today, Joseph is being used as an instrument to hem in his brothers. To cause them to come to the end of themselves and turn again to the Lord. Now make no mistake, this is God who is doing this in an ultimate sense. It is God who is pressing the sons of Jacob into a corner. They are being pushed. They are being prodded through a series of tests. And here we're looking at the three final tests. The first test we will see is in verses 1 through 13. And we'll call this the test of loyalty. Test of loyalty. Will the brothers stick with their seemingly guilty brother, Benjamin? Or will they abandon him to his fate in Egypt? Will they remain loyal? Second is the test of repentance and responsibility. And we'll see this in verses 14 through 17 particularly. Will the brothers take responsibility and repent of their sins, past and present? Third is the test of substitution. Will the brothers willingly sacrifice themselves on behalf of Benjamin and their father? Will they seek to serve the interests of others? Will they intercede on their behalf? Or will they just go on their own merry way? Through these series of tests, which are set up by Joseph, but through the providence of God, this will bring about restoration, ultimately, and reconciliation between the brothers and the whole covenant family. And so we pick up in our narrative, again, here in chapter 44, and again, we recall from last time how Joseph had entertained his brothers in his home, even as he still remained to them unknown. And he tested out their jealousy. You may remember that Benjamin was given portions five times the size of the other. So Benjamin had already been favored. It was now time for the brothers to depart. But a final test here is being given. So Joseph commands the steward of his house to fill the bags of the men and again return the men's money into the mouths of their sacks, just as had been done before. But now he makes an additional command to his servants. And this was for the silver cup to be placed 
into the sack of Benjamin, the youngest, and favored brother. And so Joseph has hatched a plan to test out his brothers, test out their loyalty. Would they remain with their youngest brother, who appeared guilty? It looks like he had stolen from Joseph. Will they remain with him, or will they abandon him to whatever his fate may be in Egypt? Would they stand with him? Now, we should note that Joseph is using deceit. And is essentially, he's setting his brothers up. And so this, well, this makes us uncomfortable as we read this. And it does beg a question, which may be in your minds. Is this appropriate? Is what Joseph, do, is, what Joseph is doing appropriate to do? Is this the sort of thing that a Christian should do? Well, first of all, it should be said, again, that Joseph was being used as an instrument of God. Joseph is an instrument of God. He is a prophet of God. It is God, through Joseph, who is pressing in on these brothers and moving them towards repentance and reconciliation. God was using Joseph to hem in the covenant family, to corner them into repentance and obedience. And so what Joseph does could never succeed without God's hand of providence and without Joseph having been a prophet of God. And so though Joseph could conceal the truth in this way and enforce a response from the brothers, Christians really aren't in a position to do likewise. You and I should not use deception to sound out people's faith and obedience. Nevertheless, there is a degree of testing that is appropriate, indeed necessary, particularly done by the elders of the church. When dealing with sinners, there is a testing or sounding out of one's obedience and faith, of one's repentance through gentle teaching, correcting, even patiently enduring evil with the hopes, as it says in 2 Corinthians 2, that God may grant repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses, that they may escape the snare of the devil. Now, we, don't, we can't just make up arbitrary tests, but we should test God against God's revealed will. And so the Lord, through Joseph, was hemming his brothers in. They were being forced to make difficult choices, which would then, in, in turn, reveal their hearts so that they may come to their senses and they may experience true repentance and a true knowledge of God's truth. And so Joseph instructs his steward to hide the silver cup for the first test. The money is returned to the sacks of the men, and Joseph's silver cup is hidden in Joseph's, I'm sorry, in Benjamin's sack. Verse 3, as soon as the morning was light, the men sent, uh, were sent away with their donkeys. Now, the men had not gone very far when Joseph instructed his steward further. Look at verse 4. He says, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, ask them this, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and he asks, how, he tells them, he says, you have done evil by taking this cup. So Joseph, through his steward now, accuses the men of theft. 
And there are two charges which are being laid before them, which assume that they know about this. Of course, they, we know that they don't know. But it's, it's presented in such a way as, if, well, you obviously know that you've done this. The first asks, why have you repaid evil for good? And the other refers to the cup itself, suggesting that Joseph was a powerful and reinforcing that he was an Egyptian who practiced divination. Now, this is uh, part of the ruse. Of course, Joseph doesn't use the cup to divine the mind of God, but received revelation directly from the Lord. And so this is something of, a, something of double, double talk, as it were. And what is being alluded to, though, is that Joseph is a prophet from the Lord. The importance of the cup is the personal ownership of it. This is Joseph's cup, which has been stolen. And a great evil has been done in this theft. Someone had taken the cup. And so when the steward overcame the men, he spoke to them uh, these words. And notice, though, too, the response from the brothers. Look at verse 7. So why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. And so they plead their innocence. We didn't do this. We don't know anything about this. Such a notion that they would steal a cup of divination? This is, this is preposterous. We, we wouldn't do such a thing. At any rate, he remind, they remind them, we brought the money back, remember? We returned the money that had been given to us before. Why would those who are honest in bringing back money that we shouldn't, didn't belong to us, why would we then turn around and steal? Why would we steal this cup? And what they assert is logically sound. You wouldn't expect somebody who's so honest and turn around and steal property. You don't, one does not return property and then turn around and steal other property. That, that doesn't seem to make sense. But then there is one final statement, which comes from an unnamed spokesman, verse 9. It says, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be the Lord's servants. Pretty strong words. So confident are they in their innocence that they prescribe a pretty extreme punishment. This is not even a, the kind of punishment the Old Testament would give, but an extreme punishment. Anybody found with it will be, should be put to death. And the rest of the family will be slaves. In one sense, this is a rash statement. With their own words, they're condemning themselves to the very punishment that they had feared all along. But on the other hand, finally, the brothers are standing together. They would stand or fall together, although they were reasonably confident that nothing would be found among them. Nevertheless, they were calling for collective punishment. Now, notice, though, too, that the steward lessens the prescribed punishment, but he accepts the principle of the saying, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. So you notice the, the, the steward sort of lowers the standard. No, no, nobody's to be put to death here, but the one who's found with it, they'll, they'll become a servant. Only the guilty party would be enslaved. Now this, of course, is the test, right? The test is, will they remain loyal to Benjamin? And Benjamin will be found guilty, but will they abandon him? And so the bags are searched, starting with the eldest, and that would be Reuben, and ending with the youngest, Benjamin. That makes sense. You start going through every single bag until you finally get to 
the youngest. And of course, the, nat- the cup is naturally found in the final sack search, that is, the youngest. Now you and I as readers, we're not surprised. We, we see this coming. We know, we know this is coming. We know what they don't know. But the brothers, well, they're utterly devastated by this. Utterly devastated. Notice verse 13. The brothers, they don't even say a word. It just says they tore their clothes. And, when they, and then every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Tearing of clothes is you know, sort of a sign of mourning. They, they, they just, they, they're just so devastated. They can't believe this. They, they, and so they, they just load everything up and they, and they head back. But again, the brothers are acting as a unit. Here, here was an opportunity, if, if there ever was one, to abandon Benjamin. They could have said, well, Benjamin, favored son of Jacob, tough luck. Good luck in uh, Egypt as a slave. No, they, they work together. They, they decide, nope, we're going to go back together and face, face this together. If he was guilty, they could have left him to his punishment, but they don't do this. And the, so the covenant family is acting as a cohesive unit. They're acting together. They will stand or fall together. And this is, by the way, the way it is to be for the church, the covenant family in the new covenant. We stand or fall together. Reuben, who had sinned greatly against his father. Judah, who had married outside the faith and was immoral in his life. Simeon and Levi, who were guilty of deceit and murder. All of the brothers, together, who had sold Joseph into slavery. Now they, together, pack their bags and return to the city from which they had just come. The agony the brothers experienced here was that of an innocent man seeing everything in their life working against them. If their father Jacob was to lose the whole family, surely he would be as good as a dead man. How much longer can this ruse go on before it would would totally crush the family? The brothers, however, unbeknownst to them, are passing tests. They showed solidarity and loyalty to their brother Benjamin, who perhaps had pled his innocence. This is not recorded for us, but at the very least, he appeared guilty. And so back they go to Joseph. And when the brothers return, you'll notice that Judah is the spokesman. He has now assumed the prerogative of the firstborn. Remember that when they had left Canaan, Judah had taken personal responsibility for Benjamin. And here he is listed as the leader and the spokesman. Verse 14 says, When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. So immediately in verse 14, you see that Judah has taken on that leadership role as he's being listed here. And it says that they fell before him to the ground. Now this falling to the ground is not prostrating out of deference, but rather out of desperation. Judah and his brothers recognize that they are totally at Joseph's mercy. They are guilty of sin and must take responsibility for it, but they're not guilty for the crime they're being accused of. They're actually innocent of that crime. Nevertheless, they fall upon the mercifulness of Joseph. 
But they don't even have a chance to speak before Joseph launches into his tribe. Look at verse 15. He says, what deed is this as you have done? Do you not know that a man like me indeed practices divination? Joseph's words, though, shouldn't be taken at face value. He was continuing the ruse, and to some degree, he's feigning anger. He reminds them, however, that he is a powerful man, that a man in his position indeed practices divination. Of course, it's a roundabout sort of way of saying that actually, uh, professing that he is a prophet of God. He does practice divination, actually. He is able to know the mind of God, but not in the way the Egyptians do it. Of course, he knows what they don't know. And so Judah, again, the leader, gives a response. Look at verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants. Behold, we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Judah's speech admits that there is nothing that can be said. There is nothing that could be said to clear this matter up. How could they possibly prove their innocence? I mean, the evidence was found on them. What are they to do? How do they plead their innocence? Of course, they are innocent of this crime, but he confesses that, in fact, God has found out their guilt in another matter. Judah's taken responsibility. Not for this crime, but for a different one. You see, the brothers are in fact guilty. And Judah confesses that guilt. Speaking on behalf of all the brothers, Judah here takes responsibility for their corporate sin. The sin which has been on their mind, no doubt, all along. The the sin in which they've carried the guilt of for many years. This was the selling of Joseph as a slave. They knew that they were guilty of this crime. They were innocent concerning the cup, but they were guilty concerning Joseph. And so here they see God, God has found us out. And so Judah here takes responsibility. In order for there to be reconciliation between parties, responsibility needs to be taken. Those who are in sin need to repent of their sin. You and I need to own up to what we have done wrong. Fully owning up with complete transparency. This is true in any relationship. Before the Lord, we need to fall to our knees. We need to seek God's grace and mercy. We need to take responsibility for our sin. We need to trust in the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to pledge new obedience to him. This congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ is our daily task as Christians. This is how we walk in the light and not in darkness any longer. Our sin must be exposed in our own hearts. If we don't expose it ourselves, others may So here Judah is speaking for his brothers. He's taking responsibility for their their actions. He's shining a light on their own hearts, confessing their sin. As he ends his speech, then Judah offers them all up as a unit to be servants. Since they all bore the guilt as a group, they all deserve the punishment 
But notice that what Judah offers in verse 16 is, is quite different from what had earlier, that earlier rash vow of verse 10. Now Judah offers them all of his slaves. Not, no one to be put to death, but all of them to be put as slaves, but they will stand in solidarity. They are guilty together of the crime, of the sin, of selling Joseph, and they will all together face the consequence of that sin. Joseph responds to this offer by again reflecting the moral law. It would not be right to punish them all for a crime of just one. Of course, you know, in in this case, Joseph is referring to the cup. Verse 17, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found should be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. So the situation again is reconstructed. Only Benjamin would need to pay for the crime of theft and become a servant. The rest, the rest could simply go in peace back, back home to their father. And here again was, the mo- was to be the moment of truth. Will the brothers remain with Benjamin? Was there any way to rescue Benjamin from his fate? Will the brothers show compassion on their father, who surely would be crushed by the loss of Benjamin? How could they return in peace to Jacob now? How could they face him? This was an impossible situation for them. And again, as the leader, Judah rather steps forward. He comes to Joseph with an impassioned speech. He begs Joseph that he may be heard, recognizing his power as being like Pharaoh. He is hopeful that he won't be angry for what what could be seen as speaking out of turn. And so in an appeal, rather Judah asks for mercy. He asks for mercy, though, for his father. Please be merciful to my father. In a sense, he's he's answering the statement of them going in peace peace to their father. We can't go in peace to my father. My father will be crushed if we go back like this. Please be merciful to my father. Judah then rehearses the history of their previous interactions. Joseph had been the one to inquire about their father and brother. They had told him about their father, who was old, and they had told him about the younger brother, Benjamin, and another brother who was no more. Verse 20, we have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Judah's concern is for his father here. Now, Judah does admit to the favoritism of Jacob. This is something that probably has bugged him all his life. He admits it again, but now his desire is to protect his father, to protect his father from the grief which was to come to him. Far from being jealous of Benjamin, Judah now sought the good of his father and his brother. Their father, Judah explains, had been reluctant to allow Benjamin to go previously. But this was the only way that they were going to be allowed to buy food. And Jacob, their father, had, had really never recovered from the loss of Joseph. He, he believed that he had been torn to pieces by wild animals. Jacob could not possibly endure the loss of another son, particularly the son of his favorite wife, Rachel. The loss of Benjamin would simply kill the old man. Verses 30 and 31, look at this. Now, therefore, 
As soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his father is bound up with his, boy, with his boy's life, we'll bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. It will just crush him. He will die. Joseph had demanded that the boy come, and now here he is. He's being taken into custody by this Egyptian master who would only bring death to their father. And so here, Judah is pleading for the life of Benjamin and the life of his father. Now this is an amazing turnabout for Judah, isn't it? But there's one more final appeal he makes. Judah offers himself in the place of Benjamin as a substitute. He explains in verse 32. He had pledged himself before his father for the boy's life. If I do not bring him back to you, he said, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. Real here is a very different Judah than what we have seen in the past. Here he is offering himself up to slavery. Judah was willing to be a substitute. He was willing to pay the penalty in place of Benjamin. And it should be pointed out that this is a wonderful allusion to what the greater Judah does for us. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is your substitute and mine. For he bore the penalty you deserved. Here too is an amazing transformation in Judah and in all the brothers. Judah was having great compassion on his father. So much so that he was willing to take Benjamin's place. This is very different from the cold-hearted cruelty we had seen when he had sold his brother and lied to his father, breaking his father's heart. The previously callous Judah has now become compassionate. He loves his father such that he begs, he begs that he might be sacrificed in place of his brother, who, who he still thinks is guilty because he loves his brother and his father more than himself. As one commentator notes, that Judah should adduce the father's favoritism as the grounds for self-sacrifice is such an irresistible proof of filial devotion that it breaks down Joseph's last defenses. What great love he shows. Judah understands how how. Benjamin is the favored son, and that's the grounds for his sacrificing himself. The very thing that he had been jealous of before, that was the reason he wants to protect his father. Judah's love excels such that it is, is appropriate that he be the new leader of the covenant family. Judah is worthy of kingship and is himself a type and a shadow of the Messiah who was to come, Jesus Christ. Judah could not go back to his father without Benjamin. For he feared the evil which would come upon his father. It is here that Joseph can no longer control himself. 
As Judah's speech has proven, no longer were his brothers the hateful and cruel men that they once had been. They have been transformed. They have been renewed. And now they're being motivated by love and by loyalty. They're willing to sacrifice themselves on behalf of others. This previously broken covenant family was now being restored and renewed. And it is here that Joseph must restore himself to them. He will be moved to weep before them and reveal himself, but we'll have to look at that next time. Joseph was an instrument, though, of God in this. You'll see that throughout the whole narrative, Joseph had blocked every path for his brothers. He He had been used of God to hem them in to bring about this reconciliation. He had had been used to bring them to the end of themselves. God had worked through his hand of providence to bring all of them to this point. He had tested out their loyalty. He had forced them into responsibility. And finally, to where they're willing, willing themselves to be sacrificed. The summary of the two tables of the law, which is given by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 22, reads this way. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The, the brothers were to love God and to love one another. And the Lord, through Joseph, had hemmed them in on every side, such they learned this. They took responsibility for their sin, and they demonstrated acts of love. The brothers of Joseph, with Judah as the leader, had their sins weighing heavily upon them. And it's been indicated throughout at various points where they, they're reminded of their, of their sin. But here, it's, it's sort of brought before them. And they're forced to take responsibility for it. It is weighed upon them. King Solomon wisely says in Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. This is what they needed to do. They needed to confess and forsake their sin and no longer hide it as they had. Beloved congregation, there's so much we can learn from this. So much we can learn from this. Because you and I are sinners. And as sinners, we need to give glory to God by acknowledging our sin. By admitting God's right to punish our sin. This is what the brothers have done. They confess their corporate guilt and they admit God has found out the guilt of your servants. And Judah's selfless plea for Benjamin demonstrates how much they had renounced their former life. No longer do they desire to conceal their transgression. Now they wanted to confess it and forsake it that they may have mercy. As repentant sinners, you and I must be willing to do anything asked of us in accordance with the word of God, because we apprehend God's mercy in Christ. 
We we must acknowledge that we deserve the wrath of God, and yet what we have in Christ and what we have great joy in is Christ's mercy. When we are confronted in our sin, we ought to openly confess our sin fully and particularly. In one sense, there there should almost be a desperation. There should almost be a desperation to be reconciled with all who we have wronged. Because repentance looks like wanting to die to our sin as soon as possible. To see our whole burden of guilt and shame removed at the cross. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, do not grow weary of doing good or of experiencing or grow weary of, of the experience of di- the discipline from the hand of the Lord, or, or try to shrink away from it, or, or hide from it, or, or, or try to conceal. Embrace God's mercy. Embrace the grace of God with a desire for obedience and renewal and holiness, knowing that God's hand of chastisement is for your good. Judah's plea, then, serves as one of the most beautiful examples of a contrite and broken heart. No longer does he care for himself only, but he considered his brother and his father's needs before his own. Beloved Christian, this is a posture that you and I ought to take as well. When we are found to be in sin and, and God always finds us out, our hearts ought to be broken. We should plead for God's mercy. We should openly admit our guilt. We should seek forgiveness, not only privately, but also to one another, and if need be, to the whole of the covenant community. Are you carrying guilt and shame for sin? Repent, beloved. Fall before the Lord who is merciful and gracious. Be reconciled to your God. Be reconciled to one another in the Lord Jesus Christ. For he offers you joy and peace, forgiveness, restoration, and rest. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this this really wonderful story, this picture of the restoration of these brothers, we look forward to next week when we get to study the rest of the story. But we're thankful, O oh God, for you are a God who does, in fact, hem us in. For you know our hearts. You know that we are sinners. Though we can conceal it and hide it from one another, you know. So, Father, pray that we might be transparent with one another. We may be transparent even with ourselves. That we may confess our sin but also know that we serve a merciful and gracious God who in Christ forgives us and restores us. Help us to experience that kind of renewal. Thank you, O God, for what you're doing in us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and for his sake. Amen.